Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 65, air date September 14th, 2015.
She practiced Indian system of Ayurvedic medicine. She could observe your face, figure out what was in your body, and then determine what was the right medicines to give you. So I grew up on that. So I was fascinated by our Indian system of medicine. And I lived, I don't know how many people of you lived in villages. I used to live when I was in at least three to four months in a village without any electricity, any water, uh, any bathroom facilities that you have today. So I, I've had that experience. I've been fortunate to have that. So I was always very interested in Indian systems of medicine and how we live, but I ended up going to MIT, doing four degrees in and out. But it was only in 2003 I came back to MIT because the field of biology after the genome project got very interesting. Remember, we went into the genome project thinking what made a human being different than a worm was a number of genes. I don't know if you remember this, mid-90s. We thought a human being had 100,000 genes and a worm had 20,000, 19,000 genes. When the genome project ends, what did we find out? We have about the same number of genes as a worm. We've got 20,000 genes. In fact, plants, maize has about 37,000 genes. So the genome project was interesting because it basically was ironic. It turns out that complexity is not related to number of genes. So after I did six, seven companies, three degrees. I came back to MIT in 2003 as a 40-year-old to do my PhD because this new field came called systems biology. I don't know if you know about this field. Anyone heard of systems biology? Well, if you haven't, you should really explore it. And Nayam, you know, if you want, I can come back and talk more about systems biology basically said, if you take an organism, the traditional Western reductionist way of looking at anything, for that matter, is you take a part. So if you go to a doctor today, they look at your body. If you have a headache, they'll send you to an ophthalmologist, a neurologist, a psychologist, and some other gist over at it, right? In the Eastern systems of medicine, they look at the body as a whole. Western systems of medicine is now catching up to this. After the genomic irony, they said, look, you need to look at the whole. So systems biology really came around 2003, saying we need to build new tools not like, you know, the old blind man where he looks at just the elephant's trunk and one guy looks at the tail and they think the elephant is different things. So biology started moving around 2003 to systems biology. And systems biology said we need to understand the whole, which means different organs, different cell types, different molecular pathways which come from genes. So genes actually produce proteins. These proteins interact in the cytoplasm and they give rise to function. You follow me? Before, biology was very reductionist. So if you were studying, for example, cancer, someone would study one little few molecules here. Someone studying the mitochondria. Some, so imagine each of one of you being individual bio biologists with your own team of 100 people. Each one of you is looking at little pieces. And then each one of you publishes a paper. Maybe you get tenure and you're done. Right? So biology was very specialized. So systems biology said you need to start connecting these things, but there were no tools. So I've been a very much into creating computational tools. In 78, I invented the first email system. In 60, and I went on to develop many computational systems. So in 2003, the idea was, could you create an electronic system that models a whole human cell? And that's a challenge I took on. Did my PhD in 2007, we created a system called Cytosol, where we could literally take any subject matter area, find the biological pathways, which are coming from in vitro and in vivo wet lab experiments. So these are not just modeling. You're looking at actually the molecular reactions derived from wet lab experiments. Okay? Remember the scientific method you do 
you have a hypothesis, you do a scientific experiment, you get data, then you model the data, then you get another prediction, you do more science. That's a cycle of scientific methods. The systems biology said, wait a minute, each one of you in this room is doing different experiments. Can I extract the molecular pathways, connect them together? Now you're aggregating experimental knowledge. So Cytosol did that. We, in fact, used Cytosol to create a drug for pancreatic cancer, which we got allowed by the FDA in 11 months, which is pretty phenomenal. It takes seven years. But it was only in 2014, uh, last year, I picked up the MIT Technology Journal, and it said, buy fresh, buy GMOs. And I was curious about this, because why was MIT saying that? And then I started realizing there was this debate, pro-GMO and against GMO, and I realized that most of it was filled with emotion or propaganda on both sides. So we said, let's apply the scientific method. So. So it was not a pro or anti-GMO issue. It was, can we apply science? Which is based on, you come up with a hypothesis, you gather data, you put it together. So that's what we did with Cytosol. And you probably read some of the papers. We looked at 6,497 experiments that were done on molecular pathways. We organized them. And we published that first paper. Then we published a second paper showing that in normal plants, there's a C1 metabolism pathway, which you probably all know of. Formaldehyde is created and then it's detoxified. Glutathione is maintained. Again, this is not modeling. This is actually the aggregation of those wet lab experiments. That was paper two and then paper three that we published was actually showing what happens when a plant undergoes oxidative stress, independent of GMOs, like a drought. And you show there that the plant actually uses up its glutathione and it upregulates formaldehyde. The fourth paper we published was, we asked the question, can we apply a systems approach to understanding the GMO question? It was essentially a question we asked, and does a GMO perturb at the molecular level? So we looked at these 6,000 experiments. We found a series of 116 papers which talked about when a GMO insertion took place in soy, that it perturbed five chemical entities, four enzymes and one uh, hydrogen peroxide. We took that knowledge, again, coming from experiments, put it into the other 6,000. We found was, in the case of GMO of soy, particularly round, to be specific, Roundup Ready soy, the CP4 synthase, that it actually upregulated um, formaldehyde, which accumulated it, which stopped it from its natural process of detoxification, and glutathione came down significantly. So, uh, so now look, when you look at our paper to answer you, your question directly, the, the reason I gave that background is we came to the conclusion that we're seeing from the aggregation of 6,497 experiments across 184 institutions, 23, institu 23 countries, is that definitely this GMO insertion is perturbing the molecular system. We end, ended our position by saying we do need to conduct now wet lab experiments. The problem is this, there are no standards. So, if I were to go, me and Lalit got together, and we went and did a wet lab experiment, the pro-GMO people would say, oh, you didn't use the right soil, you didn't grow it in the right conditions. If we were pro-GMO and we got experiments saying it was wrong, the anti-GMO people would say, oh, you didn't use the same thing. The problem is, this is one of those interesting fields. There is no standard. In every other field of engineering and science, scientists against or for get together and they establish open standards. 
So we concluded our paper saying there's a very good opportunity here to establish standards, which means if you want to really test this, you need to have the exact same soil, the same transgenic parent, right, the same GMO child. So what we said was, look, we are showing this. We need to do testing, but we need standards. And we concluded our paper by saying India may actually be a great place to host, maybe in 2016, a conference where this environment is still open. Like the fact that this debate took place is fascinating. It's not really occurring that much. If you look out there, it's an opportunity for India to lead by saying, let's bring pro, anti, neutral, it doesn't matter, but imagine we create those international standards. So if XYZ company comes up with a seed, it goes to a standard laboratory environment and it's tested independently. So we have found formaldehyde accumulates glutathione, but we need to test it. But I'm not going to waste my time testing it because even if I found something, I guarantee people are going to attack it. Right? So we don't want to perpetuate controversy. We actually want to converse to a conclusion. I don't know if I've answered your question. My issue is we need to use science. We need to get away from emotion and propaganda. And I think what you guys did here today was a beautiful first step in that. And that's what we need to do. Good question. Anything else, country? So you guys are the future leaders of this. So take that as an opportunity for you guys to lead, not follow. Thank you.